if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Bob Fratz Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Welcome back to the Bob Fratz Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Rob Walgate with you this morning, and we are being joined right now by the CEO and president of the American Policy Roundtable, Dave Zanotti. Dave, good morning. Good morning, Rob. It's always a privilege to be with you, and thanks always to Bob for giving us a chance to talk to his wonderful office uh, audience on WHK. Yes, yes, and it's a beautiful Friday morning, and we've had a lot of interaction with phone calls and people sending in messages, and we appreciate that. As you said, always an honor to speak to his audience. One of the things I wanted to talk with you today about was there's been a lot of talk about the top of the ticket this year when it comes to the presidency. However, let's talk about the United States Senate. What do you see in terms of the United States Senate and one of the things that we discuss often on our radio program, The Public Square, is cloture. What is cloture? Why do we need to know about it? How, how, where's that rule come from? Well, two big questions there, Rob. Um, wow. On cloture, it might take us the better part of about 30 minutes to uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have that conversation. That wasn't fair. But, to, see, uh, see, I have that. Uh, I have the microphone today, and I'm putting the boss in a very difficult and awkward right, spot. Right. So we'll talk about yeah. that later, about that's, throwing that's, you under that. That's called the old two-question, one-question, <laughs> which is always difficult to deal with. But let's, uh, let's take a second and qualify the comments about cloture. First off, the American Policy Roundtable is not an organization that exists to create an echo chamber or to pilfer money out of people's sentiments or feelings. Uh, we were established 40 years ago, actually 41 years ago now, just about, um, on the principle or the purpose of the mission of bringing back the traditional principles of our founding to American public policy. Now, it just so happens if you study those basic principles that we find most articulated in the Declaration of the Constitution. They come from a theistic worldview. In other words, the people that started this country believed in God. They believed there was an infinite personal creator God, and that he cared about what happens on this earth and commissions us to do something about it. So we don't come to the radio or to the field of public policy from a position of feelings or opinions or power or money or influence or wealth. 
Our goal is not to carry the water for someone else, but our goal is to remind America that we, as a country, are a set of ideas, unique in the sense that they are revealed. We didn't invent these ideas. We discovered them, and then our system is established as a reflection of those ideas. So the moral authority that we bring into the conversation really is nothing that we invented. Uh, it's only something that we discovered in the tradition of American thought. Uh, so that's why we're different. We don't exist to be simply an echo chamber. And sometimes we get on talk radio, and by God's grace, we do it all over the country, in over 200 stations with the Public Square Network, and then with certain relational contacts we've created over the years, we've become real friends, uh, outstanding talents in the field of talk radio, like Bob Francis, one of the best, one of the best in the country. Uh, we're not here just to echo chamber the most conservative conversation in the audience and get sort of a call response from people that are listening to keep the ratings up. Um, our job is to do the best we can to tell people what we have discovered. Uh, and so we call our bull in, in this discovery radio. So when you ask me the question about cloture, what I'm going to answer to you is not what you're going to hear on other talk radio stations. Because the concept of cloture is really the discussion of the filibuster. And it began back in the early 1900s, when on a couple of occasions, senators got tired of people taking the floor of the Senate and holding it for a day or two and stopping business. Now, no one's ever held the floor for more than two days. Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington is the example. A human being can only stand up and yield to their friends who are helping them so many times. You can't leave. Uh, you can only, forgive me for saying so, you can only find a way to not go to the bathroom uh, or creatively do so for so long on the floor of the Senate. Uh, it, it, the system doesn't permit an endless filibuster. So what happened was they passed a rule that says uh, you have to have, you can shut off free speech. You can shut off the filibuster. If you get 60 people to say it's time to stop talking, that's how it started. What it morphed into because of the rise of partisanship and vicious, destructive partisanship, what it developed now is the fact that in the United States Senate, you cannot vote on a measure until you reach an end of conversation on the measure, which is called cloture, until the end of the closing of conversation. Well, it still takes 60 votes. That means nothing can pass the, the United States Senate unless you have 60 votes, because you can't stop the proceedings to reach a vote you can't stop the hearing. You can't stop the conversation. You can't stop the discussion until you get 60 votes. Therefore, if you don't have 60 votes for any measure, it doesn't matter if you have a majority of 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, or 59. If you have 59 states who agree on something, you can't get it done unless you have 60. The problem we have with that is it's not in the Constitution. There are places in the Constitution where there are supermajorities required by law, but to get to a vote in the Senate is not one of them. Both parties use it to their advantage. They know people don't know the history of the law. They don't know where it came from, and we don't understand how to deal with it. And so they beat upon our ignorance, manipulate the system, and protect themselves and cut all kinds of deals based on 60 votes. It's, it is, not, it is um, an extra constitutional mechanism. They have the right to do it, but they clearly abuse it every single day. And it's, it's bad. It's just do, a bad idea. Do you think if we went, because many of the United States senators would defend 
the rule of 60. They would defend needing 60. Do you think if we went to them and said, I'll tell you what, I would agree with you, but you have to guarantee to serve in the United States Senate, you have to get 60% of the vote from the electorate. <laughs> so you can only win if you get 60% of the vote. You think they'd well, take that, that deal? Of course not. That's just like what they did in Florida, saying that now to get a ballot issue passed, you have to have a 60% supermajority, but they passed that law by a simple majority. Yeah, it, 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 it's, and this is where people get frustrated and they want to walk away, and part of our role is to encourage people to not walk away, because when you don't vote, even if you go to vote and you only know three names or three issues that you're going to vote on, you vote with what you know, because when you don't vote, you tell the politicians that they are safe to be an elitist political class that gets paid first. You know, we have to remember something. I don't, I don't subscribe to the language that says they work for us. Regardless of whether that's technically true or not, I think it's offensive and I think it's counterproductive. But let's remember one thing. People who work for the civil government get paid first. And politicians have never been at risk. You know, Mike DeWine and all of his friends have never been at risk of losing their paycheck based upon shutting down Ohio businesses because they get paid first. They get paid top dollar. They get paid first dollar. So they're never at risk. So we cannot have a political elitist class that lives outside the risk or reward of the laws that they pass. When it comes, the first part of that question. <laughs> no, no, no. You're you you hit it out of the park. I appreciate it. But you had two, you had two parts though. There was another. Oh, oh the well, role of the. But but when it comes to that, I, I think I'd like to reframe that first question. Have we made the mistake in this country and put the occupant of the White House in more importance than the United States Senate or and or the U.S. House of Representatives? Well, my uh, my wonderful friend and. In Nashville, where our national office, our Tennessee office is, uh, at WTN Radio, Michael Del Giorno was on yesterday, and he had the Sean Spicer on, and I was monitoring the, uh, the station. And um, he asked Sean Spicer that question. He said, Sean, if you had to pick between winning the Senate this year or Donald Trump being reelected, Senator the President, uh, as a Republican, Sean, what would you pick? Now, I'm not a Republican, so I'm not answering this from a partisan perspective. But Sean said he'd take the presidency. And afterwards, I reflected on that. I think, in fact, Rob, you and I even talked about it. We said, that's what's wrong with America. Yes. That's what's wrong with America. And Sean's answer to that was his justification was this particular president is very effective at using executive orders, so we'd get more done uh, with him as president than we would control in the Senate. Now, that's his speaking we, is speaking his party, the Republicans. You see, that kind of pragmatism is exactly what the founders did not want to happen. That's why they didn't make the executive branch the most powerful. That's why the court was to be an appellate court, not a trial court. Uh, and now we basically, not, not a backstop for the uh, uh, legislative branch to be able to take the tough calls where the legislature continues to pe- collect a paycheck. That's not what they had in mind. They had in mind that the United States Congress would be, the quote, the vortex of power. That's what was described in the Federalist Papers, the most powerful branch. Uh, by design, because it's closest to the people. That's what amazes me, though, is the people that say they would take the presidency because of the executive orders, aren't those the same folks that will be flipping over tables and throwing chairs when a president does executive orders that doesn't have a letter next to his name that they agree with? Uh, See, this is the concept. If we're going to deal with the role of civil government to help encourage righteousness or right living and justice, 
then we have to understand it's got to be based upon an absolute. It has to be based on something that is bigger than us in regards to the realm of truth. And uh, Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, I'm paraphrasing here, but if, if a society has no absolutes, if a government has no absolutes, then in essence the government becomes absolute. You have to have something transcendent because we are finite. We are dust. Outside of the hands of God, all of us end up as dust. That's where we started, that's where we end up. Now, some of us are incredibly creative, and President of Company excluded perhaps, but some of us are even brilliant as, as people and, and are capable of doing wonderful and great things, but none of us is infinite. And when you're talking about trying to govern 330 million people over a massive land size we have in 50 unique states, nobody's that good. So if you, if you're, if you are simply trying to do it based on power and opinion and emotions, and there's nothing transcendent or bigger than all that, you're going to be in an endless contest to find you out. Well, basically, we've devolved our civil government into what you saw last night in the town hall with President Trump. That was nothing short of pathetic. That was the example of what happens when a college sophomore comes home and decides to lecture her mother and father about how they don't know a thing about life or living because she's just now become so much smarter than that because she went away to college. I mean, it was pathetic. It was disrespectful. There should never be a public conversation in America that is that condescending between a journalist and the president of the United States. I don't care who the president is. Barack Obama was never treated that disrespectfully by anyone. And had he been, that journalist would have been drummed out of the industry in a heartbeat. We cannot do this in regards to the highest office of the land. The message that it sends to our children is that anybody can be a punk and punch the president in the nose. Yeah, that's not a message we want to send. Well, Dave, I appreciate you taking the time this morning and helping educate the audience as well as myself on those issues. So we have a lot of work left to be done in the next couple of weeks. Well, and I know you've got a very important interview coming up. I'll be listening to your conversation with uh, Secretary LaRose. He's got a very, very big job ahead. Yes, he does. The pressure is on. The boss will be listening to me. You're listening to the Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer. Welcome back to the Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer. Thank you to Dave Zanotti, President and CEO of the American Policy Roundtable, for joining us. Uh, you can hear more of Dave and our team at the Roundtable, the Public Square, iVoters.com. That team, you can visit us at thepublicsquare.com. We have a national radio program that provides information, it provides analysis, and just what Dave did, it's one of the things he's great at is the teaching aspect of it all, the education. Talk about the process, what we've learned, um, what we've seen. We've been involved on our team in a number of fights uh, throughout the years on different policy issues. We can point to tax issues. We can point to fights on gambling. We can look at school choice. You know, That's one that has been so important over the last 20-some years, and it's one that will continue to be important as we move forward. And I think what you're seeing when it comes to school choice, you're seeing it identified 
by leaders around the country, elected officials. It's one. It's something that the president has talked about often to empower parents to make a decision on where they send their children to school so it's not determined by the zip code that they live in. So many times what you see happen is families that can't afford to move from an area and they're forced to send their children to a school that they don't want to send their children to because of the education they receive, because of the safety factors. There's so many things that go into it. So why wouldn't we, as a society, embrace empowering parents with the opportunity to send the child to the school of their choice to be educated? Why doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't we be want to see every child be educated regardless of the zip code in which they live, regardless of the circumstances that they have in life? How about right now? I think right now what's going on across the country, there are a number of schools that are not opening and operating because of COVID. I'll tell you what, if a school is not open and operating and students aren't able to attend in-person classes, I feel that everyone in that district should be given a voucher to attend the private school of their choice. Let them attend any school that the parent wants to send them to in which is meeting in person. And so they can go there. When we look back on what we've done during this pandemic, when we look back 20, 30, 40 years from now, I think one of the biggest things we're going to scratch our heads about and say, what were we thinking was putting our children in situations where they weren't able to thrive and succeed, taking them out of their routines, putting them in isolation, removing them from their friends. Oh, you want to see your friends? Dial them up on Zoom. FaceTime them. That's not how it should be. Every child should have the opportunity to attend school in person, and we need to empower the parents. Leave it up to the parents to make that decision. When we come back after this break, we are going to be joined by Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, and we will talk about what lies ahead in the next few weeks in regards to the election in Ohio. You're listening to the Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer. Welcome back to the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer, Rob Walgate from the American Policy Roundtable sitting in for Bob on this Friday morning. And we've had a lively discussion and um, so far this morning. It's an election year. And on this election year, who better to talk to than the Secretary of State from the state of Ohio and Frank LaRose. Good morning, Mr. Secretary. How are you? I'm doing well, Rob. We're staying busy, but seeing a lot of excitement out there for early voting, which is already well underway. Well, I know you how busy you are, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us this morning. couple questions. You know, there's been a lot of talk about absentee voting and mail-in voting. How does mail-in voting compare in terms of numbers this year to previous years? 
We are breaking all previous records. Ohioans know that voting absentee is a secure way to cast your ballot. This is something we've done in, in the state of Ohio for close to 20 years. It's nothing new. Uh, and there are important safeguards in place. And so the numbers that we're seeing right now, 2.5 million absentee ballot requests. To put that in perspective, Rob, at this point in 2016 or 2012, in both years, we were at like 1.2 million at this point in the, in the cycle. And so we're, we're double that and really excited to see the enthusiasm for both early and absentee voting right now. So when it's all said and done, you may have 1.5 to 2 million more ballots to process this year than in previous presidential election cycles. Is that true? I think we're going to have a high turnout year. You know, Ohio just went over 8 million registered voters. We were excited to see that. That's something we've been working on for a while. We got some new registered voters in Ohio, but we're also seeing a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement out there. And I think that we could break our record for uh, for participation this year. And that'd be a good thing. I'm glad to see Ohioans participating in the process. Definitely. We want to see everyone that's registered participate in the process. Can you walk the audience through, let us know, how much time does it take to process a mail-in ballot? What does that look like? Yeah, so actually there's a video we've been working on to kind of explain this to people because we want to take the, the mystery out of it and, and show people really all the safeguards that go into it and, and how much it's a bipartisan process. I always joke that it's like, uh, you know, it's like those old submarine movies from the 80s where it takes two keys to launch the torpedo. At the Board of Elections, it takes two keys to even get in the room where the machines are stored that count the ballots and that kind of thing. So as soon as the absentee ballot is received at the Board of Elections, they can immediately begin processing it. That's not the same in other states, but in Ohio, they can start doing it right away. They cut it open. They, they verify the information on there. We check identity information on every single ballot, the name, the last four of the Social Security number, the address, the date of birth, that signature gets verified. After that, then they cut open the next envelope, and that's when they sever your identity from your ballot, just to make sure that nobody can tell how you're voting, right? Because we all believe that we all should have a secret ballot, and that's something that we work hard to, to maintain. At that point, that's when they sever the, the identity from the ballot. The next thing that has to happen is, believe it or not, they actually have to flatten the things out so they go through the scanner, and that takes a while. they gotta, they got to put some books on top of them, and they put them in a safe or a vault to do that in most cases, but they... They work to get them flattened out so they go better through the machines. And then they scan them. Um, on election night is when we start counting, though. On election night, right at 731, that's when we begin counting ballots. And so the absentee votes are actually the first ballots counted in most cases. A lot of people don't realize that. Well, so you talk about the counting process. You, your best guess, we're not holding you to this, but when do you think Ohio will have a full certified count? Because it's obviously going to take a little longer this year than years past. Yeah, so that process is actually laid out in law with a specific timeline for how it works, and it happens three weeks after the election. So it's something that um, is always the case, and I get this question a lot. People say, will we have a final result on election night? Well, the answer is, of course not, because we never have a final result on election night. Let me explain that briefly. In Ohio, what we do on election night, and most other states too, is on election night, we release the numbers so far. And what that means is that that's how many absentee votes, early votes, and in-person election day votes have come in up until 7.30 on election night. But it won't be all the votes that will come in, and here's why. In Ohio, you can get ballots at the Board of Elections up to 10 days later, as long as they were postmarked by Monday, November 2nd. So if it's an overseas military person, like one of my former teammates serving abroad, or maybe just an Ohioan that waits to the last minute, those are legally cast ballots that deserve to be processed, and they will be processed. So here's what we're doing different this year, Rob. 
we're going to start reporting at, right at the top of our website. This is getting attention all around the country. The number of outstanding absentee ballots. It's a knowable number. The board keeps meticulous tally of how many ballots go out, how many come back. And so on election night, we're going to tell you how many votes your favorite candidate got all the way down the ticket. But we're also going to tell you how many votes or how many ballots are yet outstanding. And that can help you be uh, informed to know whether it's a conclusive result on election night or not. And listen, if it's a landslide for somebody, it very well may be a conclusive result on election night. You can see where it's going to go. But if it's a tight margin, it may be too close to call. And that's not something going wrong. That's the system working as it's designed to work. Well, we appreciate that transparency and that Ohioans are able to see those numbers up on the site. You mentioned the military ballots. Are those treated the same as absentee? How are those counted? Is there any difference? You know, not as far as how they are counted. Now, how they can be received, there are some special accommodations that are allowed for military personnel. And so if you have a loved one that's serving overseas, or if you have a loved one that's living overseas for other reasons, for business or studying abroad or whatever else, uh, they have special opportunities to get their ballots. Like, for example, we can email you your ballot if you are a what's called a UACAVA, an overseas or military voter. Now, of course, when you get emailed your ballot, you have to print it out because we need a signed physical copy to be mailed back to us. That's a security protocol, of course. We can't accept ballots electronically, but that can cut the transit time in half. So if, it's, uh, if, if you know somebody overseas, it's not too late for them to get their ballot emailed to them so they can print it and then mail it back to their board of elections. Those are just some of the examples of things that we can do. We've got a full-time person in our office that focuses on just making sure that our overseas and military folks are taken care of. And so if you have any questions, voteohio.gov is the place to go. And you can get in touch with Aaron Locker, who's our overseas and military veteran, uh, uh, overseas and military coordinator. He himself is a wounded warrior, so he knows what he's talking about. Now, when we talk about, you talked about the mail-in ballots that come in, the absentee ballots. Um, will those, everything will be opened, am I hearing correctly, everything will be opened and ready to process to be tabulated on election night when the polls close. Every, all, everything you have will be tabulated that evening? That's correct. And this differs from states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. They have laws in those states where they're not even allowed to cut open the envelope until Election Day. So imagine like Wayne County, Michigan, which is Detroit area. They could have they could have three quarters of a million ballots stacked up in their safe and they can't open them until Election Day. It could be Friday before Michigan has results. Uh, Same thing with Pennsylvania. Same thing with with uh, Wisconsin. In Ohio, we can process them. They're ready to go. Now, the, the, the caveat, Rob, is if people procrastinate, which we're asking people not to do, don't wait to mail in your absentee ballot. Uh, but if people wait until the last minute and there's a big avalanche, if your board of elections gets 20,000 ballots on Election Day, well, then it's going to be the wee hours of Wednesday before we get through all of those, because obviously, uh, you know, Election Day is a busy day. But as long as they're arriving ahead of time, they will be counted. And what we will report on Election Night as the unofficial tally will be everything that has arrived. Now, how late the night goes will depend on how many people procrastinate and mail in their absentee ballot at the last minute. Now, we, we know, we've heard the stories of what happened in Franklin County, roughly 50,000 ballots sent out, misidentified in air. What protocols, safeguards are in place to ensure that one of those ballots won't uh, not only fall into the wrong hands, but someone won't have the opportunity to vote two different ways? Yeah, so first of all, the thing that happened in Franklin County, plainly speaking, not acceptable. It was an unacceptable, sloppy error. 
And um, and by the way, there were safeguards in place to prevent it from happening, but those safeguards weren't followed, and and that's the problem. And and, and so um, the Franklin County Board of Elections has learned from their error, and they're moving on from it. Uh, you're right to say that uh, fifty, uh, uh, roughly fifty thousand voters received the wrong ballot. It was a collating error, effectively. They stuffed envelopes with a big machine that that had it off by a few, and so you were getting a ballot that really should have gone to somebody across town. Now, they have since corrected that and sent everybody a replacement ballot. Now, some people said, well, then they have two ballots. Doesn't that mean they get to vote twice? Of course not. Uh, just because you, you could have 50 ballots, that doesn't mean that you get to vote 50 times. Only one vote is tallied per voter. I mean, it's it, it, right there in the voter rolls, and you can look and see who has voted and who hasn't. And so uh, w- when you send in your ballot, you get to vote that one time. Now, Obviously, for these 50,000 or so individuals who received the wrong ballot, what the Franklin County Board of Elections wants them to do is to send in the corrected one. But if by chance they sent in the first one and made that mistake, then they're going to work with them to make sure that they can still count their ballots for those countywide and statewide races that were that would be on that ballot. So the Franklin County Board of Elections is working with folks, but to be clear, nobody gets to vote more than once, and that's right. something that absolutely that just can't happen. Right, and I'll, and I'll leave you with this, because Ohio, we know we have a large student population in colleges across the state. Are you in communication with other secretaries of states across the country to ensure that those college students who could register in Ohio with an electric bill or with some type of form of identification aren't voting in two separate states? Are there safeguards in place for that? Yeah, Rob, so you're going to love this. So this is something that's actually pretty new. It's a thing called the Electronic Registration Information Center, ERIC, as we call it. What it is is a multi-state collaborative, and the more states that join, the better it gets. It's gotten over 30 states now that are part of it, and it's red and blue states. It's not a partisan thing in any way. And what this allows us to do, this wasn't the case even just a few years ago. One of the reasons why the states created this is because we didn't want the federal government doing it. We want them out of the business of elections. It's up to the states to run it. We can bounce our records off of other states. We do a database comparison with the other states that are members of ERIC, and I've actually referred people for prosecution for double voting. Now, to be clear, it's a small number. It's a fraction of a percent, but it's something that we take seriously, and there is a process in place to catch you. So if you think that you can get away with double voting in Ohio, you can't, and you will face justice for doing it. Well, we appreciate your time this morning, Mr. Secretary. What would you like to say to the listeners, to the audience, to Ohioans? How can they help in this process over the next two and a half weeks? Three things. First of all, be a source of accurate information. There is so much dubious information spreading around on the Internet right now. Ohioans know that it's easy to vote, but we need to reinforce that. It's unfortunate, and this particularly comes from the left, this old narrative about it's hard to vote. It's not hard to vote in Ohio. It's simply not hard to vote in Ohio. You make a decision about which one of the three convenient options you want, early voting, absentee voting, or in-person election day voting, and then go carry out your plan. And so be a source of accurate information. Of course, go vote. That's important. And if you do vote absentee, don't procrastinate. Get that ballot mailed in as soon as you can. And there's still time to request your absentee ballot. And voting absentee is a secure way to do it because you can actually track your ballot online just like you would track a package that you order to make sure it's received by the Board of Elections. The final thing, we still need poll workers, particularly in my home county of Summit County where they're lagging behind. We need both Republican and Democratic poll workers. You can sign up at VoteOhio.gov. The Board of Elections will call you, schedule you for training. You'll be doing a patriotic duty. Of course, you'll get paid for it, 
but more importantly, you're doing something important for our state and nation to make sure that we're having free and fair elections for every Ohioan. So those are my things. But the bottom line is you got to vote. Well, we appreciate the time, and I can't say enough good things about the poll workers in the state of Ohio that are willing to go out there and serve to help others. So thank you for the job you're doing. Let us know how we can continue to help. And uh, November 3rd, it'll get here eventually. So thanks again for the time. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. Take care. You are listening to the Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer. She keeps them always shandled in a pretty cabinet. Let them eat cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. Welcome back to the Bob France Authority, AM 1420, The Answer. And Andrew, we've made it. We did. Made it to the final segment of the week. Uh, Before I left this morning, my wife reminded me that I wasn't coming here to be a comedian, leave my dad jokes off the table, so I managed to do that. She will be happy and content, um, but we've made it. Haven't spilled coffee, too many other things. Big thanks to um, Secretary of State Frank LaRose for joining us this morning, answering a lot of questions that I know a number of you have had. We're going to go to the phone lines, 216-901-0945, if you want to be heard on this Friday morning. We're going to go to Gary in Seven Hills. Good morning, Gary. Hi, good morning. Earlier you spoke about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and her not you know, resigning yes. um, while Obama was in office. And I've read that the reason she didn't resign was because she was running under the assumption that Hillary would get to be the president. And then we would have a female president appointing a uh, female uh, justice of the, of the Supreme Court. She was trying to spike the female football, if you will. And um, at, at that, and what, I, what my point is, is that she had an obvious bias toward women. And I, I'm, I'm certain that that bias came out in any cases re- regarding women or men that she had to uh, that she had to decide upon in during during her tenure. Well, thank you for the phone call, Gary. Um, it, it's clear that uh, Justice Ginsburg wanted to have a say in who would replace her, or at least. She wanted the next president to be the one to replace her. Um, why she didn't step down when President Obama, that, that we can all speculate the reason. I feel the reason was they never dreamed that they would lose the White House and the Senate and she could stay as long as she wanted. Now, remember, as we move forward, if the Republicans lose the White House, if the Republicans lose the Senate, then there also will be speculation from the other side saying, well, if something happens and Clarence Thomas was to step down during, do you, do you think that if Joe Biden wins the presidency and the Democrats win the Senate, do you think that, that the Democrats are going to say, well, Clarence Thomas was a staunch conservative. He was an originalist. So we're going to, appoint someone that would fit that mold phil see no it's it's not we've turned the supreme court into a partisan football that we think we can toss back and forth 
between the parties, and, and that was never the intent of it. You should be looking at the law. You should be deciding, uh, not making law, not creating law. And when you read some of these things, it, it just absolutely boggles my mind, especially, I, I'll tell you, and we've hit on this before, especially most of the discussion centered on Roe, centered on Roe v. Wade, a decision from 1973. That's what many of the questions came from. And here you have the left, the Democrats, that stand up and applaud the party of science, they say they are. Science should dictate. Science should determine. Take a look inside a mother's womb and tell me what the science tells you is inside of there. How come no one talks about that science? How come they don't say, well, the science tells us that's a child? These pictures tell us that's a child. If the science, if we had the technology in 1973 that we have today, there is zero chance that Roe v. Wade would have been decided the way it was decided. And you can't convince me otherwise. There's no way they would have looked at those pictures and said, oh, yeah, yeah. And it's been used by the left to say you're allowed to terminate a pregnancy for any reason up until the 40th week. Now, again, there's people throwing their hands in the air saying, Rob, that's totally not true. That's not how it's used. Well, how's it used? Again, the party of science. We talked earlier today about a question that Joe Biden received last night at his, I don't even want to call it a town hall, at his coffee meeting with George Stephanopoulos, and he received regarding the transgender issue. Again, the party of science. The, is the left the party of science? They're re- relying on feelings. That's going to dictate. You see, those terms, the the party of science, they're only used when it fits their agenda, when it fits what they're trying to accomplish. When it comes to Roe, when it comes to the life issue, they're the first to scream, oh, that's the decision for a woman. You can't get between a woman and that decision. Okay, what's interesting to me is you're also the party that wants to tell every single person in this country what type of health care, what type of health insurance they should have, because there's a difference between health care and health insurance. And in the last few minutes of the show, obviously we won't have the time to dive into that, but they're the ones that scream, leave the woman alone in that decision. But by the way, I'm going to tell you how you are going to live your life medically, because I'm going to tell you whether or not you can go see this doctor. Did you listen to Joe Biden last night? He also was saying he's going to tell you that you better take that vaccine or they're going to withhold some things from you when it's approved. He talked about how they can deny the right for some children to go to school based upon the shots that they receive. And they're worried about taking away a medical decision from a woman. That's what they say. Yet they want to make every single other medical decision for you. They want to. Just listen to them. They're telling you you better put a mask on. They're telling you you should wear that at all times. If they can tell you what you must put on your body, don't you think they believe that they have the authority to tell you what you should put in your body? Authority. Brings us back to Ohio state law. Ohio revised code 3701.13. That provides the director of the Department of Health in our state with ultimate authority in terms of isolation and quarantine. I currently know people right now that have received letters from 
their county health department, telling them they are not to leave their home for 14 days or they could be prosecuted. They don't have COVID. They don't have it. But they were around someone that has COVID. Oh, but by the way, they weren't closer than roughly six feet of the person that tested positive for COVID. Oh, and also they both had masks on the entire time they were around each other. But they've been told they can't leave their home for 14 days. And they don't have COVID. And they can't test out. They can't just take a test and say, I don't have COVID, therefore I don't need to be quarantined. So what happens if they don't get COVID? Two weeks from now, they're around someone else that gets COVID. They have their masks on. They can't test out. Again, a negative test doesn't matter. They can be quarantined again for 14 days. When does it end? When are they able to take back control of their own life? What if they're able to prove that they already had the virus and they have the antibodies? Well, Rob, Rob, that doesn't matter. You maybe could get the virus twice. Get it twice? Then why are we working on a vaccine? Because aren't we just giving that person then artificial antibodies? Wouldn't we rather them have the real antibodies? Those are a lot of questions that probably need to be answered. We're headed to the weekend. I hope you enjoy your weekend. Big thanks to Bob for allowing me to sit in today. Andrew behind the glass. Marcy, thank you for all your work and everything you did. Big thanks to Dave Zanotti, Secretary LaRose. Thank you for joining us. Remember, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil by doing good.